Uh, we are in Micah chapter 6, and it's uh, good to be able to be together and study together. And uh, let's uh, start with a word of prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Creator above, we're thankful that we can come to you in word as your children, or that we can come to you in prayer, Father, as your children. We're thankful to know that you love us, that you're our master, and help us to always remember that we're servants in your kingdom, Father, and that we need to serve you well and serve you every day of our lives, Father. Please encourage us to pray to you more often, to seek those who are lost, to encourage our brothers in Christ. We're thankful, Father, for the widgets who open their home on a regular basis to us to be able to sing to you in praise, to be able to study your word, and it's encouraging and edifying for us, Father, as brothers and sisters and your son. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us in this life with our cars and our homes and our jobs and we ask that you always be with us and strengthen us to always stand for the truth, Father. We know that your foolish is that your foolishness is wiser than our wisdom, Father, and that your weakness is stronger than our strength. And we need you every day in this life, Father, and life would be nothing without you. You are our everything. We're thankful for this time that we can come together to study your word. Please bless us with knowledge and wisdom of your scripture that we may be able to teach those around us and that more souls will be brought to your son, Father, if we're <coughs> serving you in a way that we should be. We love you, Father, and we pray that we'll always serve you the best of our ability. And so we pray these things. Amen. When we look at Micah, Micah was written near the uh, end of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, written both to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom, and the book divides itself into three parts. Um, and you see that with a here now uh, in 3.1 and 6.1. So the parts are chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 5, and chapters 6 and 7. And in each of those parts, he starts with the condemnation of their sin, and he ends with the blessings that he will give to them after he punishes them. So we're back to the final section, starting with the punishment for their sins, the judgment, and then later the salvation. Um, and we, you know, there's perhaps some connections between these parts, but I think we can just uh, start into chapter 6 with that introduction and uh, see what he's got here. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Bor answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gogol, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Okay. The Lord has a case uh, that he is pleading. What kind of a case is this? What would we call that? A court case. Exactly. He's got a lawsuit. Well, now, what grounds would he have for a lawsuit? 
Yes, breach of covenant. He had a contract with these people. Remember the covenant that he made with them on Mount Sinai? And there were both some stipulations and blessings in that covenant. The people actually agreed to the covenant. They said in Exodus 24, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And promptly went out and broke it. You know, and just continued to do that. So the Lord has a case. He's got a lawsuit against his people. Who does he who is he going to ask to listen to this case? The mountains, the earth. Um, I think they're like almost the jury in the case. Or maybe the witnesses. Because after all, the mountains, the heavens, the earth, they've all seen what Israel has done in not fulfilling their contractual obligations. Kind of like the witnesses of the covenant. So he calls upon them to hear this indictment, this case that God has against his people. Now, if you are in a, a uh, you know, breach of covenant lawsuit, there's going to be a couple things you're going to have to prove. Isn't that true? If you want to win a breach of covenant lawsuit, what two things are you going to have to prove? <coughs> that you didn't break it and that they did. Right? Because if you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain then clearly you have no case against the other party. Well, how did God do with that? He said, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? You know, in what sense had God not fulfilled his obligations? In what sense has he weighted them down? He says, I've, I've wearied you. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. So he looks all the way back to the Exodus. That's something God had done for them. And, you know, what kind of leaders had God raised up for them in the Exodus? Who were they? Moses. Moses and his brother and his sister, Aaron and Miriam. So he, he acted to save them. He'd given them good leaders. And even when they got into the wilderness and they got close to the promised land, Look at what God did. What did uh, Balaam do? Remember that? What did Balaam actually do? He wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And what did Balaam end up doing? He blessed them. He blessed them. Uh, do you know why Balaam blessed him? Did he really like him? God controlled his mouth. Balaam wanted Balak's stuff that he was offering him to get him to curse the Israelites. And he tried to four different times. He opened his mouth and every time out came a blessing. So that was clearly God's act of blessing them through Balaam. And you see how God brought them in the New American Standard from Shittim to Gilgal. What's that talking about? When did they go from Shittim to Gilgal? So many times that knowing place names <laughs> helps you understand things in the Bible. So you should know Gilgal. 25. Israel 2, also Joshua 2, I think. 
Yeah, what, what event is it referring to? Anybody know? Yeah, Gilgal was where they did what? Remember what they put in Gilgal? The stones! What stones? The twelve stones out of the Jordan. Out of the Jordan River. Remember how that was? Joshua. <coughs> it was Joshua. Yeah. yeah. When they're crossing over the Jordan, they go from Shittim on the one side of the Jordan to Gilgal on the other. So this is their entrance into the promised land. Do you see how God is taking care of them? You know, he, he brings them out of Egyptian bondage, gives them good leadership, causes them to be blessed and not cursed by Balaam, and then brings them into the promised land. Now, what can you, uh, what can you blame God for in what he did? He's been with them every step of the way. He's blessed them. He's taken care of them. So the problem with the contract is not God's problem. He's done the right thing. He's done nothing to deserve their wicked response. So this is his case against them. Comments and thoughts? Yes, Mike. I just really appreciate your choice of words whenever you brought out that it was the promised land. In, in the covenant, just like you said, he held his in the garden. He, he protected them. He guided them. He fulfilled his promise to them. And yet, they were so rich. Yes. Good point. So, you know, if there's a problem here, it's not on God's side. He's been faithful. That just brings out the outrageousness of their unfaithfulness even more. Other thoughts? Did he call on the mountains in Isaiah or something? Yes. Like and there were, I thought there was more to it. I mean, maybe the fact that they witnessed the covenant or, or wasn't they called upon as witnesses at the time of the covenant? Yes, they're mentioned at least. That, that, that is an idea in the end of Deuteronomy that the uh, mountains and the hills, the heavens and the earth, um, you know, are to hear him and they're sort of uh, the witness of the covenant right offhand. I don't remember exactly the passages involved. Um, somewhere in Deuteronomy 31, 32, in, in that section. Uh, so yes, they were. And having been witnesses of the covenant, then they are also witnesses of the breach of covenant, and therefore appropriate ones for God to call up to. Other comments? Well, how about six to eight? This is kind of um, kind of a, a response, I guess. Six to eight. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, food of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, this is an interesting passage because it's kind of like the people responding with the question of what? What do we do now? <laughs> yeah, what do we do now and kind of like... What more could I do? Yeah! It's kind of like, okay, so what are you supposed to do? 
You know? God's not happy with them. So, so what is the Lord asking? You know, sometimes people might almost ask that, and I think they probably did, with a spirit of irritation. No. So, so what am I going to do? Well, they give, give some suggestions. You know, does he want more burnt offerings? We have to bring some more yearling calves. You know, what about thousands of rams? You know, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? Maybe he wants, to, maybe he wants our firstborn son offered in a sacrifice. You know, um, sometimes when people are not fulfilling their responsibilities before God, and they know God's not happy with them, they almost in irritation, okay, okay, I'll just give more. You know, okay, you know, I'll read another chapter. That's what he wants. You know, that kind of a thing. As if, can you imagine, you know, you think about the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. Even what we see in Micah in the previous chapters. Is the thing that God really wanted out of them some more animals? Is that what he wanted? That wasn't the issue. You know, does he want child sacrifice? Is that going to make him happy? Well, of course not. You know, people sometimes are thinking along the wrong lines. They've missed the whole idea of what God's asking for. You know, thinking that, well, look, that he, must, he must want it some more. Let's give him, you know, more animals. That would be easy. But here's what he wants. And this is a great summary of exactly what God's asking for. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. God wants us to do the right thing, to pay attention to his will, to follow what he says, and to act like he wants us to. God wants obedience. He wants people who trust and love him and serve him. It, you know, what God's asking, on the one hand, is not that difficult. It's not like it's a you know, huge amount of money or you know, he doesn't want child sacrifice. You don't have to present your firstborn. Or, but he wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you li- your life. He wants you to live for him. They weren't doing that. But that's what God wanted. And so often, when we know God's not happy with us, we miss even what he's out after. So this is a great passage to help us really see the whole aim of God in this. Comments and thoughts on this. I haven't read the uh, whole Old Testament, but from what I have read, uh, I'm thankful to God that it seems like our well, the law we're under is much easier to keep than what they that they had to do in the old law, and it doesn't seem like we have to um, do so many things, so many like particular, like you know, just the way they had to. I don't know, setting through. I think it was like Exodus and stuff, and just all the things that they had to do back then. We don't have to do. I mean, I just don't feel like our law is so. We have so many laws to keep, and uh, and I feel like, and now that we're saved under grace, uh, I don't know. It's I feel like it's it'd be easier to serve under our law than the old law. Well, what do you think about that? Is it easier to serve under our law than it was under theirs? I think the old law, it was on your mind more because you were having to do sacrifices, you were having to obey certain rituals that happen at every time of the year consistently, and we don't like aren't bound by those constraints now, and it maybe takes it further from our mind. That's an interesting thought. Emily? It seems that either way it's the heart. I mean, the old law, you had to serve from the heart, and the new law, you had to serve from the heart. 
So if your heart is right, then it doesn't matter what you're trying to do as long as you're trying to please God. I mean, maybe it's just easier to become accustomed to certain things. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm saying, so uh-huh. I think it would be just, if your heart's right, then either way, you're going to be able to do That's what I would say. I really think God wanted the same thing both places. I don't think there's much difference between what God asks, particularly in the essence of what he asks. You think about when they weren't doing well, like here. What were they really messing up on most? Were they messing up on the details of the sacrifices most? I'm not saying they never messed up on that. But I don't think that was really the issue so much. In fact, that's fairly easy. What if God what if what God wanted were just bring some animals, here's the requirements for the animals, here's what you have to do with the animals? How hard would that be? Not as hard as giving him your heart, as trusting him, as loving him, as obeying him. Those are the things that are more challenging for us. So my view is really in essence the idea of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God, that's the basis of the relationship with God in any covenant. And that's the challenge. Think about this. In the new covenant, what are the two biggest commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Well, now, where did Jesus come up with those two? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy for love God and love your neighbors out of what book? A good trivia question. You know, don't you, David? I'm not sure. Okay, anybody know? You ought to know that. Leviticus. Yes, not Leviticus. Uh, Well, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you the two basic principles of the New Covenant were the basic principles of the Old Covenant, too. You know, I understand that specifics have changed. God is really not wanting any animals in sacrifice today, and so forth. That was sort of the shadow that led us to Christ. But as far as basically what God's asking in the Covenant, the loving God, loving your neighbor, the doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with your God, it's the same thing. So I say there's not a whole lot of change, especially on the nucleus of it and the hard part of it. And so often what we make the mistake in, even today, is the same thing they make the mistake in. We focus on certain specific details and we miss the point. What do people sometimes think that Christianity is all about? Oh, making sure you get that Lord's Supper in every Sunday. You know, making sure you give. You know, making sure you don't miss a service. You know, maybe making sure you've got your Bible reading checked off. And so we sort of turn it into some specific details that we want to get right. I'm not belittling those. But I'm saying if all we do is that, we kind of miss what God really is looking for. Still the number one commandment is to love God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbors yourself. That's a little bit more than showing up at the right building, the right Sunday, the right day of the week, you know, to drink some grape juice and eat some bread. And if that's all it means to us, then what kind of life do they want? 
They showed up at the temple with that animal. You know, they got it. You're old. Yeah, I've got this right out. There we go. Now, God, what do you, did you need another animal? <laughs> no, no. I need you to love me and live for me. That's our challenge. Comments and thoughts. Larry. Yeah, I, I think the devil just, I mean, he works on us in different ways. And, you know, you look at people in, in the religious world, you know, they, they look at passages and say, well, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So they say, it doesn't matter how we approach him, just as long as we love him, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then sometimes, you know, I was talking to Adam last night, you know, since, you know, I came out of the denominational background, and, you know, and I came to understand authority and, like that, I thought, you know, that opens up a lot of doors of things I never understood about the Lord, about the Bible, that really explained a lot of things about how we approach God. But the danger in that is, like what you're saying, is that we become a checklist people. And on the other extreme of that is that we don't realize how to approach the Lord, with, I mean, in what way. So, I mean, to me, life is kind of like, you know, illustration, you know, we, we, we have a tendency to be extremists. We're driving down the road, we see this danger, so we swerve off the road, we crash on this side. You know? <laughs> well, we see this danger to the left, so we swerve. You know, a lot of religion is, if you look at a lot of religion, we, we see something that's perverse or something we don't agree with, so we swing way to the other side. We're so reactionary. And, it's, and it is, I mean, it has always been, from Genesis to Revelation, it has always been by grace through faith. That's how you approach God. So, you know, and you're exactly right. God wants our heart, but we have a tendency to get whether, you know, mercy without sacrifice or seeing all this checklist. And, 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 it's, and it's so hard sometimes to see the truth and love the Lord with all our heart and, and do that, be that kind of person. Good point. If you love the Lord with all your heart, what would you do? What will you do? You'll do exactly what he says. You know, if you really love God, then you want to please him. And you want to do exactly what he says. You know, so loving God is not in contrast with keeping his will and in detail. But it's not, you know, it's not one of those things where just doing some external things means you love God. So you really have to understand the principle of what loving God is. It's not just a good feeling about God. It's dedicating yourself to Him and seeking His will. Right. Um, it reminds me of the passage, I think this correlates with this. Uh, it reminds me of the passage in Matthew 23, starting in verse 23, when Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay a tithe of men and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain on a mat and swallow a camel. And just and he just keeps going on with the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, I just it's like they're I don't know it's like they're you know trying to get everything that they're not they're not understanding like, the bigger picture of the matter. Well, you stop and think about it. It is so much easier to do a few rituals than to do what? Everything God asks. You know, God, you know the Bible says don't commit adultery and Jesus says, that means don't lust in your heart. Well, it's easier to just, okay, technically, you know, didn't commit adultery. You know, and we've figured out all kinds of ways to uh, even, you know, sort of uh, abbreviate what that really means. You know, adultery no longer means a lot of things it used to mean, or it means in the Bible. 
And uh, so, so we get we get a technicality. Well, but but Jesus is looking so much deeper than that. And 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 if all we have to do is tithe these little herbs, that's relatively simple compared to justice, faith, and love. And so we really need to love God so much and care so much about His will that we're really serving Him, not just trying to get a few details right that are relatively easy. If we love God, absolutely, we'll serve Him in every detail. But we won't think, well, as long as I get the right fruit of the vine and the right bread, that's all it takes. So here, their problem was... They missed the whole point. They were totally unfaithful to the covenant, even though they were willing to bring a child and sacrifice it to God. You know, because they were not serving him the way he said. Other comments? Like God is so mighty and so powerful, and he has the authority to demand verses 6 and 7 if he wanted to. That's exactly right. But he wants the internal, not the external manifestation. Absolutely. You, you take, you know, some of you have probably done this. Have your parents ever told you something? And, you know, they said, you know, now look, you know, do not go beyond this chicken. You know what an enterprising young child does. <laughs> what? what is he'll watch it or kind of get closer and closer and they'll watch it and they'll watch it. Lose the chair. <laughs> Have you ever done that sort of thing? Now, what, what, what's the deal there? They're not at all concerned with the will of the parent, even though they are concerned to technically, I didn't go beyond the chair. <laughs> yeah, that's sometimes the way we are with God. We don't love God. We're not seeking His will. We're just trying to figure out some loophole, some some way of you know being able to technically say, "Well, you see, I really didn't." <laughs> you know, we do all that kind of stuff, don't we? You know, you take various laws and rules, and we come out with some sort of convoluted reasoning in our mind. Well, but really, well, really, if you you know, and uh, you know, I didn't really tell a lie. You know, because actually, well, you know, and we got all this whole thing. We weren't concerned with the will of God. We weren't trying to please Him. We're just trying to figure out some way to get to do what we want and still say, I did what He said. Do you think God doesn't see through that? What well, if any parent sees through that? You know. Other thoughts? Alright, um, he's continuing this indictment and uh, speaks about some specific things that they were doing. 9 to 16. The voice of Yahweh will call to the city and it is, sound, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales in a bag of excessive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Horizons speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safety, but you will not preserve anything. 
And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Therefore I will give you up for destruction, and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Okay. So what we see is some specific things they were not doing right. You look at verse 10, 11, 12. What are some of the specifics that they were not doing right? What were they doing? They're being wicked, deceptive. Deceptive in what? Yes. You know, commerce, buying and selling. What were they doing with that? Cheating. Yeah, that's our word for it. They were cheating. They were using deceptive weights and measures. You know, to where they were selling, you know, I don't know, five pounds or something, but it really wasn't five pounds. You know, they were, they were figuring out ways of, of deceptively uh, negotiating contracts and so forth. Now, you think about what he asked for in verse 8. What part of that in verse 8 were they not following? To love kindness. That and another one. Do justice. Do justice? <laughs> this is not just. It's not honest. The, the kindness make them it even stronger in verse 12. The violence. You know, they were, they were um, had an economy based upon fraud and violence. They were filing the fundamentals of what God expected of them. That's what God found in them. I don't care how many animals they bring if they're cheating their neighbor and, and, and murdering him. You can't exactly expect that God's going to be happy just because you brought an animal. Well, that's your behavior. So, what's God going to do to them? Punish them severely. Strike them down. Desolate them. He said, you'll eat and not be satisfied. You know, you do all these things, but you won't get anything out of it. They call these the futility curses. You know, and the idea of that is you put all this effort into something, but you get so little to show for it. See that idea? You know, you sow, but you don't reap. You tread the olive, but you don't anoint yourself with oil. You, you plant the grape, but you don't drink the wine. You do all the work, but you get none of the benefit. That's kind of the opposite. When they went into the land, how was it? Yeah, and what did they get to do? Yeah. yeah, exactly. You get to live in the house that you didn't build and, and eat from the, the farms that you didn't plant and cultivate and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, for example, and other passages, he talks about that. You know, so this is that in reverse. Now they do all the work and somebody else gets to profit by it because they have been cheating and conniving and deceitfully scheming in what they were doing. God is going to cause them to reap what they sow. And then he says, in verse 16, the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. 
No, you know about Omri and Ahab? Yes, they were. Who was the... Do what? Are they related? They were related. How were they related? Yeah. Omri was Ahab's daddy. And they were really bad. What, what particular sin would we most identify Ahab with? Idolatry. Idolatry. Specifically, Baal. Now, you remember what Ahab did that kind of led him into Baalism? Jezebel. Who was, who was Jezebel? <laughs> yeah. It's hard to tell whether it was his mom or his, uh, his wife. She sort of acted like his mom. Uh, do, you, do you remember Jezebel? Where did she come from? No. Her mom. Well, it's where they lived, but where was she from? Remember her origin? Yeah, one of the other nations. Uh, Which one? <laughs> nope. Other end of the alphabet. Almost. Not the but... Sidon. Good for you, Tasha. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon, at Baal. And she, back in her homeland, what do you worship? You worship Baal. Ahab marries her. And sure enough, he starts becoming a Baal worshiper, and he, he introduces that into all of Israel. And what do they do? Well, this is generations later, but they are still following after the statues of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab. They're walking in those devices. They are giving themselves over to idolatry. And so what's God going to do? He's going to destroy them. What would you do if you were God? You know, you can certainly see why God's going to punish them no matter how many animals they bring to him. They've still breached the contract. It's kind of like, you know, what would you think about, uh, you know, a husband is, you know, betraying his wife and he brings her home several bouquets of flowers and some chocolates. Hmm. What's she going to think about that? How will that make her feel? Yeah. Probably make her want to punch him. <laughs> I mean, you know, think about it. How outrageous it is to totally betray her and then you come in with a box of chocolates and some flowers. As if that's going to make that up. They betrayed God when they worshipped Baal. He was like their husband. And, and they were with another lover. And then they come with an apple. They want to make up for it. Right. Comments and questions on chapter 6. Um, I can't help but think of in verses uh, 14 and 15. How he's telling them their punishment, you know, I will, they will still not reap, and um, everything that they're going to try and do, um, they're not going to benefit from it. Um, I'm thinking along the lines of this, when I was saying, how is this fair? You know, how, what is this going to be our punishment? Um, you know, where's the fairness in that? Well, you see, um, in Isaiah 5, when he speaks about, you know, I did, that he was the gardener, he planted and he did everything he needed to do and expected a good fruit and what came 
bad fruit, sour grapes. And it's like, you know, that, that's who they were. He did everything to take care of them, and they didn't produce for him. So now they're going to produce, and they're not going to benefit from it. So they have no argument whatsoever. That's exactly right. And in this immediate context, when they were cheating and swindling to get what they got, God's just going to reverse it, and he's going to take away what they worked for. Because that's what they've been doing with everybody else. So they reap what they sow. How? Um, sometimes when I'm tempted to sin and I want to not follow the Lord and I don't want to do what He says and I want to do what I want to do because that sounds like a lot of fun and really pleases my senses. It's really hard to see how horrible of a situation that would put me in and how, how just it's horrible. Like it talks about in verse 12, uh, the rich men in the city are full of violence and the residents speak lies. You know, there's no... There's no quality of relationships in the city. It's just like chaos. Everybody's doing what they want to do. And it's just, just a horrible situation. And it's bad. And then, you know, it talks about the futility. And it's just like how vain and empty life would be without God. And it's just really hard to see that when I want to sin. But it's really helpful when I do see that, when I'm feeling tempted. That helps a lot to see how forward is to say. Yes, it does. That's exactly right. We really got to think about those things in the moment of temptation. Uh, if we really had our mindset right when we were tempted, we'd do so much better. Good point. Other thoughts on chapter 6? I think it's you think of it this way is the fact that either they were doing the good things to make up the wickedness or they were doing the good things so they could do the wickedness either way. It's still that's the way we are. We want to, to do something and make up for it. You know, in, in, in our relationship with each other, you give me something that I need, something back, we're both equal. And when you recognize in this relationship with the Lord, that is not the case. You cannot give Him an equal out. What you should do. This right. is not an equal opportunity relationship. This is a, He gives you, you, you do what you can, and hope it's an, and it'll never be enough, but you're doing what He's asking you to do. And it's so hard for us to see it that way because we're so used to those human relationships where you give me this, I give you that, we're both equal, we're equal trade. That's not the way it is with the Lord. It's the grace and the mercy. That's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to grasp. We never will grasp it. But it's also hard for us to live by. Good point. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, it's, uh, you can't, we can't uh, buy our privilege to sin. You know, it doesn't work. Other thoughts? So many times, just to go along with what Shane was saying. I mean, so many times when I first, uh, after I was first saved, I was, I would, I don't know. I mean, I committed sin, and I just was like, well, I can always ask for forgiveness afterwards, you know. And I never really looked at that I'm hurting my Creator. Or, you know what I mean? Like I'm separating myself. I guess I never really saw. I didn't understand sin was like a, a separation from myself and the Lord, you know. And like I didn't realize I was hurting my soul so much, and I was hurting my Father, you know. And and I don't know. And I mean, it's just such a stupid way to look at it. Like, well, I can ask for forgiveness after I sin. Well, how would we think of that on the receiving end? Somebody really hurts us. They like, I don't know what would be really hurtful to us. They, They tell nasty stories about us to other people. And then they come and ask for for forgiveness. Then they go do it again. They ask for forgiveness. They go do it again. They ask for forgiveness. How would you start feeling? stupid. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's like, whoa. You know, you start thinking, well, 
what's this asking for forgiveness business yeah. anyway if all they're going to do is go out and do it again I mean sometimes people will do things like that and we really are hurt by that in interpersonal relationships God has a personal relationship with us when you think about that other thoughts and comments uh, to go along with your saying, I mean, I think something in Luke 17, verse 3, you know, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So, I mean, you know, like, we can't just be blindly, or, you know, we can't just keep forgiving him just because, you know, he needs to repent. So. Right. Larry? Right. Yeah. In verses 3 through 5, when the Lord says, You know, the things that he has done for me brought you out of that house to land, you know, gave you freedom. You know, I gave you leadership and guidance. I gave you protection and blessing. You know, when you think about that, you know, there is nothing in a sense that God hasn't provided for us as a nation. I mean, when you think about, there is no excuse at all for one of us to be lost in this country. We've got the Bible. It's always been a bestseller. (laughs) We are blessed more than any nation. You know, the song that we sing, God Bless America, and, and... you know, all these things, I mean, we are truly blessed, and if any one of us are lost, it's not because the Lord has not provided for us and loved us. We, we, we have more than, really, than, I guess, in a sense, than Israel. I mean, they're just as much. There's no reason for one of us to be lost. You're exactly right. And it makes, you know, the disobedience so much more outrageous when you think about how much God has done for us and how much He's loved us and how much He's given us. And we can serve Him and he wants us to be his people, and he's done all this for us. So sad if we reject that and we don't receive the blessings that he's given us. Other thoughts? Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 6.